Now today, friends, we come to the epistle to the Galatians, and there's quite a bit of preliminary here that I'd like to put down today. And if you can get this in your mind and heart, I believe that it will make this epistle probably more meaningful to you than any in the Scripture. At least, it'll make the gospel clear to you. Now, we believe that Paul wrote this epistle to the Galatian churches on his third missionary journey from Ephesus. He had just visited them, had come through that area, and discovered that the Judaizers had followed him, and the churches there were listening to the Judaizers. And Paul wrote this letter to counteract their message and to state clearly what the gospel was. Now, the thing that's so important to you and me relative to the epistle to the Galatians is the people to whom it was sent. That is not always true in the other epistles, but it certainly is true here that you and I need to know the background. We have here the theory, and I'm not going into this. Those of you who are acquainted with introduction, matters concerning the books of the Bible, know that I do not dwell on these matters that today are the subject of the higher critics. For instance, there's what is known as the North Galatian and the South Galatian theories. And to me, the answer is just simply this, that Paul is writing to all the churches in Galatia. It was a rather lengthy area, and it was a very prominent area. And in that section was a great population, and many churches had been established there. The word Galatians could have an ethnographic sense. That would refer to the nationality of the people, or it could be used in a geographic sense, which would refer to the Roman province by that name. Now, regardless of the position which is taken, there is a common blood strain which identified people in that area where there was a mixture population. Now, the people for whom the province was named were Gauls. They were a Celtic tribe from the same stock which inhabited France. The way they got there can be traced, by the way, in history. In the 4th century B.C., they invaded the Roman Empire and actually sacked Rome. And later they crossed into Greece and they captured Delphi in 280 B.C., and then they were warlike people and on the move. And at the invitation of Nicomedes I, who was king of Bithynia, and that is an area in Asia Minor, they crossed over into Asia Minor to help him in a civil war. Well, they were warlike people, and they soon established themselves in Asia Minor. In fact, they liked it there. Delightful climate, a beautiful country. I know that I was very pleasantly surprised to visit in Turkey to find out what a delightful place it is along the Aegean and inland in that area, and also along the Mediterranean. Now, in 189 B.C., these Celtic tribes were made subjects of the Roman Empire, and they became a province, and their boundaries varied. And for many years, they retained their customs and language. They actually were blonde Orientals. And the churches Paul established on his first missionary journey, they were included at one time in the territory of Galatia. And this is the name which Paul would normally give to these churches. Now, these Gallic Celts, they had very much the same temperament and characteristics of the American population, that is, those of us who came out of Europe or England. And it's interesting to notice what has been said concerning our ancestors. As you well know, there were wild, fierce Germanic tribes, many of them, and Celtic tribes in France. And Caesar had this to say concerning them. Listen to this. 
the infirmity of the Gauls is that they're fickle in their resolves, fond of change, and not to be trusted. Well, doesn't that describe the American population today, the bulk of them? Fickle in their resolves. Well, one time it was the yo-yo, and my, it was quite a fad. Then there was the hula hoop. And my, anything that comes along, why, we go for it. We are fickle in our resolves. We're fond of change. We want a new car every year. We want the latest model. And we like to get the magazine that's dated next week. That's the picture of these people. And another has described them as frank, impetuous, impressible, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconstant, the fruit of excessive vanity. That's a picture of the American population today. One comes along and runs for office, and we go for him. And in four years, we forget him. <laughs> and you remember who was president eight years ago? Remember who was president ten years ago, twenty years ago? May I say to you, we are very fickle people, and we're not very constant. And I'm very happy that they said we're eminently intelligent because we think that, and the reason we think it, because it's the fruit of excessive vanity. That's the picture of us. Now, they wanted to make Paul, you remember, a god one day, and the next day they stoned him. <laughs> and that's what we do. We elect a man a president, and then we try to kill him in office. It's quite interesting today, our system of government, that it has survived as long as it has. Now, the epistle to the Galatians, therefore, has a particular message for us, because it was written to people who are like we are, like temper, who are beset on every hand by cults and isms innumerable. They had take us, likewise, from our moorings of the gospel of grace. Now, let me say a word about this epistle before we get into it. It's a stern, severe, and solemn message. We'll see it when we get into it. It does not correct conduct, as the Corinthian letters do, but it is corrective. The Galatian believers were in grave peril. Why? Because the foundations were being attacked. Everything was threatened. And the epistle, therefore, will contain no word of commendation. No word of praise, no word of thanksgiving. There is no request for prayer. There's no mention of their standing in Christ. No one with him is mentioned by name. And you compare this with other epistles of Paul, and you'll see this is a little different than the other. And in this epistle, the second thing that makes it unusual, the heart of Paul the apostle is laid bare. And there's deep emotion and strong feeling. Actually, this is his fighting epistle. He's got on his war paint here. He has no toleration for legalism. And someone has said that Romans comes from the head of Paul, while Galatians comes from the heart of Paul. Or, put it like this, as a theologian has put it, Galatians takes up controversially what Romans put systematically. Well, that's all right. I'll accept that too. And then there's a third thing that makes this epistle outstanding. It is the declaration of emancipation from legalism of any type. A very interesting thing is the legalists do not spend much time with Galatians. It rebukes them too much, by the way. Now, this was Martin Luther's favorite epistle. And he made this statement. He says, this is my epistle. I'm wedded to it. And it was on the masthead of the Reformation. It's been called the Magna Charta of the early church. It's the manifesto of Christian liberty. It's the impregnable citadel and a veritable Gibraltar against any attack on the heart of the gospel. And as someone has put it, immortal victory is set upon its brow. And this is the epistle that moved John Wesley you remember John Wesley came to this country as a missionary to the Indians. And when he got here, he made a discovery, a startling discovery. And he said this, 
I came to America to convert Indians, but who is going to convert John Wesley? And he went back to England and to London, and one night walking down Aldersgate, and I was there not too long ago, and I had the guide take us to that place. And there is a marker put up there saying this is the place that John Wesley was converted. They call it an evangelical conversion. Well, that's the only kind of conversion the Bible knows anything about. And John Wesley went out to begin a revival, preaching the gospel of this epistle that saved England from revolution and brought in a great revival that had more to do with affecting life than any other. Wilberforce, one of his converts, had a great deal to do with this matter of child labor, with the factories, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution that brought about the changes for the working man. But, of course, they don't recognize that today. Now, this is a great epistle that we're going to look at. And I believe that since it's been the back bone in the background for every great spiritual movement and revival that has come in the past 1900 years that, my friend, it'll be the background of any other revival. And that's the thing I would like to see, all of this wonderful moving of the Spirit of God in our land today. I'd like to see them come to the epistle to the Galatians and to begin to declare its message. And I believe it would revolutionize lives. I think it would do that, and I know it would do that. And we believe that teaching it now on radio, that will reach many people. And why don't you urge your friends, unsaved friends, to listen at this time to the epistle to the Galatians? Now, there's a fourth remarkable thing about this epistle. It is the strongest declaration and defense of the doctrine of justification by faith in or out of Scripture. It's God's polemic on behalf of the most vital truth of the Christian faith against any attack. Not only is a sinner saved by grace through faith plus nothing, but the saved sinner lives by grace. And in this epistle we say that grace is a way of life, and it's a way to life. Both go together, by the way. Now, in this epistle, I've divided it, actually, into five divisions. And they're very simple. I hope you get our notes and outlines. You'll need them. First is the introduction in the first ten verses. Then there is that personal section, and then the doctrinal section, and then the practical section, and then the autograph conclusion. It's a remarkable epistle. I'll not go into detail of the outline. I trust you don't have it. You'll send in and get it. You're going to find notes that really be valuable to you when we come to this epistle here. Now, I want us to come to the first chapter here, and we have the introduction, and that's in the first ten verses. And in this, why you have the salutation is a cool greeting in the first five verses. And then the subject is stated, and it's a warm declamation in verses 6 through 10 here at the beginning. Now, as we have already said, Galatians is God's polemic against legalism of every and any description. Now, the law is not discredited here. It's not despised. It's not disregarded. Its majesty, its perfection, its demands, its fullness and purpose are maintained. Yet these very qualities make it utterly impossible for man to come this route to God. Another way is open to us, which entirely bypasses the law, for man to be justified before God. The new routes by faith, justification by faith, is the theme with the emphasis upon faith. And this statement from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, is quoted in the three major epistles. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And in the epistle to the Romans, the emphasis is upon the just. 
justification. In Hebrews 11.39, it's quoted again. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, the emphasis is upon the just shall live. And it's upon shall live. And in Galatians 3.11, where it's quoted, the emphasis is upon by faith. So that you have three points of emphasis. The just in Romans shall live in Hebrews by faith in Galatians. And we find here, as we get into this, that Paul is really warm when he begins writing this epistle. So there have been two methods that have been used by those that have attacked the gospel. They attempt to add something to it, and then they attempt to discredit the man who preaches the gospel. As we've said before, the method of Satan today is to not attack the Bible with a frontal attack. As you know that in warfare, that's not always a good method unless you have superior forces. And the way that you do is not to make a frontal attack, but a side attack. You bivouac, you deploy your troops, and you come from other angles. Well, the enemy today doesn't make a frontal attack on the Bible. The attack is made always subtly, and it's generally made upon the man who's preaching the Word of God. And that's the reason the fundamentalist has been attacked so bitterly today man said to me the other day, said, I understand that you're a fundamentalist. And I said, yes. And he laughed. And he said, well, you know, I've always thought about the fundamentalists as they're no fun and they always meddle. Well, and he laughed. He thought that was new. Well, I've heard that ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I've heard that expression and wasn't new at all. Well, that is always the attitude that you're somehow or another, as one man said, you're an intellectual obscurantist. Now, I don't know what that is, but it's not good. And that's the method that's used today. And you find out that they're going to make an attack upon Paul and upon his apostleship, upon his authority, and that's the way it starts out. Paul is defending his apostleship here at the very beginning And it's a very cool greeting to those people that he had led to the Lord and established the churches there, and he visited them on every one of his missionary journeys. Now let's get our foot in the door of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is saying here that he is an apostle, and the way that he's saying it, I don't think that any parenthesis that we have here is really necessary. The word apostle is really used in a twofold sense. It could be one of the twelve, those that were with Jesus during his three-year ministry, those that were witness of his post-resurrection ministry, and then those that were chosen by Christ. Then an apostle could be one who was sent forth, used in a wider sense. And I think Paul, in our judgment, that is, in my judgment, I think he took Judas's place. I think that he is the one, the man that they voted on, Mattathias, I can't find him mentioned anywhere else. And if the Holy Spirit chose him, certainly somewhere along the line he'd set his seal that this man was an apostle. Paul proved he was an apostle, but Mattathias never did. And I take it that that was just an election held before Pentecost. That's before the Holy Spirit came into the church. And for that reason, I don't think it was ordered of the Holy Spirit, by the way. And there are a lot of elections in the church today that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with either, which is quite obvious. But at that time, it's quite obvious because the Spirit of God had not come. I believe Paul is the one that the Spirit of God chose to take Judas's place. And now Paul is saying something here It's rather important. He says he's not of man. And the preposition apo here in the Greek conveys the meaning of 
not from man. That is, it's not legalistic. He was not an apostle by appointment or commission after attending a school or taking a prescribed course. And then he says he's not by man. And the preposition dia indicates that it was not through man. And that just simply means that he didn't have the other apostles lay their hand on his head and say, Hocus pocus, acrocadabra, you're an apostle. He is an apostle. How? By Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus called him directly. And God the Father did. The one who would raise Jesus from the dead. And it was the resurrected Christ who made Paul an apostle. That's important to get right here at the beginning. Now, I am an ordained minister today. Ordained minister from man and through man. They told me I had to go to school. I had to have certain degrees. I had to finish a seminary before I could be ordained. I did that. And that was the from man. That was the legalistic side. And then I went before a church body. They examined me. And then they decided they would make me an ordained minister. And I knelt in the church I was ordained in and had been called as pastor in a second Presbyterian church in Nashville, Tennessee. And they put their hands on me, a group of men did, and they said, you're an ordained minister. Now, I'm that kind of a minister. Now, Paul said, I'm not that kind of an apostle. He said, man didn't have anything to do with it. I'm an apostle made one directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now he says, "...and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia." Now, the second thing for us to note here is the fact it's churches. And you notice it's rather cool greeting. It's very brief, it's very formal, very terse. No one here is mentioned by name personally. And Paul doesn't express anything here other than he says to all the brethren. And it's not to just one church, but plural churches. Now, there are two ways in which the word church is used in the New Testament. One is it includes the entire body of believers of all different groups, that is, those that have trusted Christ, and they belong to that body. Then there is another way the word church is used, and that is of a local assembly. And that's what he's referring to here. There were churches in different places in Galatia. There was one in Antioch of Pisidia. There was one in these other places that Paul had visited, Derby and Lystra. And he's writing to all the churches some of them, I'm sure we do not even have the name at all. The local church, therefore, is in view and not the corporate body of believers. And when we get to Ephesians, we'll look at the church as that corporate body of believers, invisible. But you see, the invisible body is to make itself visible today in a corporate body. And I do believe that you should be identified with a local body of believers. That, I think, is important. Now, Paul uses his usual greeting that he has. It's rather formal in verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word grace here we've seen before, charis, was actually the Gentile manner of greeting in that day. And the word peace was shalom, and that was the religious way in Jerusalem of greeting anyone, shalom. Now, the grace of God must be experienced before we can experience the peace that's from God the Father. And that, I think, is very important for us to see. I'll dwell on this a little bit further when we get to Philippians. I have dwelt on it before, but we'll be back to it. So I pass over verse 3 with those brief comments. And I come on down now to verse 4. "...who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father." Now, here is another one of those marvelous verses that when you come to it, 
I really don't know what to say. I can't rise to the level of this verse. So let me say some things about it that I trust might carry you to the height. Now, Paul here mentions now the Lord Jesus Christ back there in verse 3. And having mentioned him, he says, now who gave himself for our sins. And here Paul gives the germ of the subject. And what is it? He gave himself. Now, nothing that you and I can add to the value of his sacrifice. Nothing. He gave himself. What do you have to give, friends? Anything? Can you add anything to the fact he gave himself? That's all that's necessary. He gave himself. And how wonderful and glorious that is. I just don't know what to say. I'm speechless when I read a thing like this. He gave himself. And when you give yourself, you've given everything. You've given who you are, what you've got, your time, you've given talent, you've given it all. He gave himself. He couldn't give any more. And you and I can't add to that. I haven't anything to add to that. He gave himself for our sin. Paul just couldn't wait to say it. And so, having mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ, and he calls him our Lord Jesus Christ, he's my Savior. Can you say today he's your Savior? And then can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? It's one thing to say he's a shepherd. It's another thing to make it possessive. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that today? Because he goes on to say here, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Now, do you notice something there that's very important? He delivers us from this present evil world. There is, therefore, a present value of the gospel which proves its power and genuineness. Now, the gospel today can deliver you from this present evil world. Now, this poor girl, she tried to live by the law. Some cult put her on the law. What did she turn up with? Why, she turned up with a baby. She knows who the father is, but she's not married to him. How tragic it is. May I say that the gospel today can deliver us from this present evil world. Now, over against this ladder... I have literally now thousands of letters from folk who've turned to Christ, and he's delivered them. He's delivered them from drugs. He's delivered them from alcohol. He's delivered them from sex sins, such as this. He's delivered them. And only Christ, my friend, can deliver you in a case like that. He alone can do it. That proves the genuineness of the gospel. He gave himself. And he gave himself for our sin. And that means he had to take my place. He died in my room, raised again. And he did it that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And now, that doesn't exhaust this verse. That's according to the will of God. Now, he can deliver us. And it'll not be according to law, but it must be according to the will of God, my friend. The will of God is that when he saves you, that you're not to live in sin. How wonderful that is. He can deliver us. wants to deliver us. He will deliver us. And he'll do it according to the will of God. It's his will that you be delivered. My friend, this is a verse that makes you feel like throwing your hat in the air, does it not? But now let's move on. We read here, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just a moment. Paul stops to render praise to God. I have become convinced today that I have never emphasized in my ministry as I should the fact we should praise God more than we do. Let's just... Come right down to the nitty-gritty today, right down where the rubber meets the road. Did you this morning praise his name when you got up? 
You thank him for a new day. You say, oh, it was raining, it was a storm, it was cold or hot or whatever it was. It was a terrible day. But did you thank him for it? Praise his name that he brought you to a new day. I had to have a bout with cancer before I came to the place where I now, every day, the first thing I do of a morning, I don't care whether the sun comes up or whether it's pouring down rain, I say, Lord, thank you for bringing me to a new day. How wonderful it is. How wonderful it is. We need to praise him more. I want to praise him. I want you to know that I want glory to go to the name of my God and my Savior. I don't want to stand on the sidelines and compromise today with all of these plays and songs that are belittling the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm speaking out. I say to you, he is God manifest in the flesh. He gave himself for me. I want to praise his name. To whom be glory forever and ever. And that forever begins right now, and it's going right on into eternity. Now, that concludes this first part. And I think you'll have to admit, won't you, friends, that this is a pretty rugged sort of a salutation, a very cool greeting. Now he's going to state the subject. The subject is stated now. And now he goes from cold to hot, and I mean he's hot now. Hot under the collar, if you please. Why? Because the fact is that there are those that are mutilating the gospel. Paul, I tell you, would give his life for the gospel. Listen to him now. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. In other words, the Judaizers had come in. And the thing that we need to note here, and I'd like to call attention to it, is this, that the gospel has two aspects to it. And it can be used, actually, in two senses. There are the facts of the gospel, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised bodily from the dead. Paul said to the Corinthians, you'll recall, in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you the gospel. He said, I received it. He didn't think it up. He received it. What was it? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, friends, those are the historical facts of the gospel, and they can't be changed. And you've never preached the gospel unless you stated those facts. Now, the second thing is the interpretation of the facts. They're to be received by faith plus nothing. Now, Paul will get to that, and I'll wait till he gets to it. But the thing that he's saying here is this. The Judaizers had come into the Galatian country. And the facts of the gospel were not challenged. They were historical facts. They were living at this time. Paul said, 500 who saw him at one time. And when you've got that many people around as witnesses, you don't run around denying the facts of the gospel. But it was the interpretation of the fact. What they were saying was this. They did it very subtly, very slyly. They said, did Brother Paul come here among you? Why, they said, yes. He came and preached the gospel, and we accepted it. We were converted, and we know Christ now as our Savior, and we're in the body of believers. They knew all of that. Now, these Judaizers, this is how they move. Oh, they said, that's wonderful. You know, Brother Paul is quite accurate in as far as he goes. But he doesn't go far enough. Did he tell you that you should keep the law? Oh, he didn't? Well, then, he should have told you that, yes, you're to trust Christ, but you must also follow the law or you won't be saved. May I say to you, does that sound like anything that's up to date today? Well, it's not up to date. It's one of the oldest heresies that we have. It was in Paul's day. Adding something to the gospel of grace that you have to do instead of believe. Or, say, you believe plus doing something. And I have statements of several cults and isms, 
And I know two of them have this. Four things you must do to be saved. Too bad Paul didn't know that when he said to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's too bad that Simon Peter didn't know that when he said, There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's too bad the apostles didn't know that. And it's too bad Jesus hadn't told them that. And he had told them, You go and preach this gospel, and it was that you are to do nothing but to trust what has been done for you. That's very important to see here. In fact, it's all important. The gospel shuts out all works, everything. Now, what he's saying here is this, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that call you under the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Then he says, well, there's only one gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And that word pervert is metastrapho. It's a strong word. It was used by Dr. Luke when he was recording Simon Peter's sermon in Acts 2.20, when the sun was turned to darkness. That word turned. James uses the same word, laughter turned to mourning. In other words, this is quite a revolution. To attempt to change the gospel has the effect of making it the very opposite of what it really is. That's very important to see, by the way. Now he goes on here, verse 8. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now this is as strong as anything could possibly be. He says, if an angel declared any other message than the gospel he would be dismissed with a strong invective. Suppose right now, while I'm making this tape and while you are listening to it, suppose that an angel appears here to me and would say to me, Look, McGee, you should add something to that. And when you hear it, the angel would appear to you and say, Look, you should add something to it. McGee's right as far as he goes, but you've got to do something else. May I say to you, you could say to that angel, and I could say to him, get out of here. I'm not listening to you, though you be an angel from heaven. Paul said that an angel from heaven, and believe me, these cults don't look like angels to me. These that are preaching actually another gospel today, they look like anything but angels. But however, Satan makes his ministers angels alike, and some of them are attractive, are they not? Now, he says... If any preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Now, friends, that's strong language. In fact, that's the strong. I hesitate to use it on the radio, but I'm going to give it to you. He says, if any preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be damned. And friends, I can't make that any stronger than that. And this is a day when they're using language like that, and I frankly don't like to use it. But Paul used it. That's the word he's using here. Now, the gospel shuts out all works. It's to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And that's not in Galatians, but Romans 4, 5. Now, the real difficulty today is not that people should be good enough to be saved. A great many folks say that. A man just the other day said to me, You know, McGee said, I want to become a Christian. I'm going to try to be a little better. And if I improve, I'm going to become a Christian. Well, I said, if you improve, you'll never become a Christian. You'll be kidding yourself because you're not going to improve. The thing is, therefore, not that problem the problem is that people are not bad enough to be saved. And that's the reason church members that are unsaved are so hard to reach with the gospel, because they think they're good enough to be saved. And they're not good enough to be if they could only see themselves as they are. And the problem, therefore, is that we don't think we're bad enough to be saved. 
One man said to me, he's a neighbor, he said, you know, I've listened to you on the radio. He said, very frankly, what you say is good for the folk down on Skid Row, but he says it's not for me. Well, you see, he's not bad enough to be saved. He just hopes he'll be good enough. Now, the only class that God's saving are ungodly. The Lord Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the reason he said that was because there were none righteous, no, not one. And the law, therefore, must make us speechless before grace can begin. Then Paul put it again, not here but in Romans 3.19, "...we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, and the whole world become guilty before God." The law is given to shut your mouth, friends. But it caused a lot of people to do a lot of yapping today about how good they are and they keep the law. Now, the gospel of law and grace has no power. It has no growth. It has no victory. Now, they were not denying, the Judaizers in that day did not deny that Jesus died and rose again even for sinners. What they denied was that that was adequate. They said that you have to keep the law plus that, plus trusting Christ. And when you mingle them, that's the thing that Paul is saying here, let anyone, even an angel from heaven, be a curse. Why? Because they perverted the gospel, they did not deny the facts of it. Now he goes on to say, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now, you preach the message that we're given here today and will give in this, you'll be in trouble because it's the gospel of the grace of God today that the sinner hates. And a lot of unsaved church members don't like to hear it today. They want to do something. They want something that appeals to the flesh. And I tell you, the one thing the gospel does, it puts you and me in the dust and makes us beggars, and we have to come and ask God. We have to turn to Him and receive from Him everything, and we bring nothing in order to be saved. Now, by nature, the way we're all made, there's no exceptions to this. Man responds to legalism, and the preachers are popular that give that. Now, I listened the other night on TV to a local preacher in Southern California on radio who put on, to my judgment, one of the finest programs from a technical standpoint, from a professional standpoint. And he even talked about Jesus coming into the world. He talked about him dying. He talked about him being raised. But he never said anywhere in there that those that he was speaking to were sinners and that Jesus needed to die for them if they are to be saved and they're to trust him. No. I'll tell you what he talked about. He talked about commitment. Now, he said, all of you that want to commit your life to Christ. Well, friends, let's look at it. He doesn't want my old life. I haven't got anything to commit to him. He wants to do something through us today. Oh, if we could only learn, God's not even asking you to live the Christian life. You can't live it. He's asking that he might live it through you. And Galatians is going to say that. But first of all, you have to come to him as a sinner to be saved. And friends, I don't want to be ugly. But when I say that, my wife says, why is it when you always say you don't want to be ugly, you turn right around and you're ugly? Well, I'm sorry if I'm ugly, but you know that our churches are filled today with people that are not saved. And you know why? They've never come to Christ as a Savior. Oh, they feel like they've got something to commit to him. <laughs> you haven't got anything to commit to him, friends. He wants to commit something to you. He died for you. And he's on the giving end. He said the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And it's just as simple as this. Have you accepted it? Have you received it? That is the important thing. Now, by nature, man responds to legalism. And he doesn't need a Savior. All he needs is a helper. That's all. 
My friend, we're going down for the third time. We need somebody to save us. Now, our conscience witnesses to the law, and legal conviction will lead to works. We tried to compensate for the fact that we're not doing enough and that we want to balance the budget and have on the plus side enough to be saved. Paul tried that. Paul had a whole lot on the plus side. But one day he came to Christ and he says, What was gained to me became loss. What was loss became gain. Now the Holy Spirit witnesses to grace today. And that's gospel conviction. And that leads to faith. Actually, the law denies the fall of man. And that's the position of Cain. Grace acknowledges the fall of man, and that was Abel in the offering that he brought to God. Now we come to a new section here, and it's personal. We had the introduction, the first ten verses. Now, from verse 11 in chapter 1 through verse 14 in the second chapter, why we have the personal side, and this is the authority of the apostle and the glory of the gospel. We have, first of all, the experience of Paul in Arabia. And that's in the remainder of this first chapter here. And here you have the experience of Paul in Arabia after he'd been on the Damascus Road. And here you have the origin of the gospel, then the conversion of the man. Then in chapter 2, from verses 1 through 10, you have the experience of Paul with the apostles in Jerusalem. You have there the oneness of the gospel, and you have here the communication of the gospel. Now, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, we have the experience of Paul in Antioch with Simon Peter, and there you see opposition to the gospel, and you see conviction concerning conduct there. Now, we're going to look at this personal section. Let me begin here now with verse 11. Listen to Paul. He says, "...but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man." Now, he's coming right back to what he's already said in the very first verse. He says, "...here I certify you." That is, I remind you that after man, it should be according to man. I certify you, brethren, the gospel which was preached of me is not according to man. I didn't get it from them. Now, the Judaizers, you see, not only questioned Paul's message, but they questioned the man, that is, his apostleship. He was not one of the original twelve, they said. He's a sort of a Johnny-come-lately. And they cast a shed upon the validity of Paul's authority as an apostle. And so Paul is going to take up that little matter with them, by the way, and show them that his apostleship is an apostleship that rests very candidly upon the fact that he was called directly by revelation and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Will you listen to him now, verse 12? For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. In other words, he didn't get it by going to school. He didn't get it by being ordained, having hands put on his head. He says, but it was by the revelation. And that word is the apocalypsis. That's the word used in the book of Revelation. The gospel is a revelation as much as the book of Revelation is a revelation. It was an unveiling to the apostle Paul here by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't become an apostle by coming through Peter, James, and John, but he's an apostle directly by being called of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, "...now ye have heard of my conversation..." And that means my manner of life in times past in the Jews' religion. Now, he calls it now the Jews' religion. It was his one time, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals 
in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Now, will you notice this? Paul was saved not in Judaism, not by Judaism, but from Judaism. That is what he's saying here. And believe me, he was a staunch supporter of that. Now, will you notice what we have here is a statement he makes that is tremendous. Verse 15, but when it pleased God, this is according to the will of God now, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, that is, Gentiles. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Listen to him. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Now, Paul says, I never got the gospel from anyone else. I got the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. Many years ago, there was an old modernist. And that, I think, was a misnomer to call those fellows modernists. There was nothing modern about what they gave. It was all old heresy. But he wrote a book. I heard him lecture, and he told about Paul, and he gave Paul credit for being a great brain. I personally think he had the greatest mind of any man that's ever lived. And a great many... Scholars who are better acquainted with Paul than I am also make that statement. Paul the Apostle, he said he was a brilliant student of the Mosaic system of Judaism. He was a brilliant student of Greek philosophy. And that Paul combined them and he came up with Christianity. Now, Paul says here that he didn't get it that way. He said that he got it another way, that he got it by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice what he says here, verse 18, "...then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days." And I suppose that that was the record that we have in Acts 9, chapter 26 to 29. It means he spent less than three years in the desert. It's been interesting how God has trained his man. He trained, you will recall, Moses out in the desert. He put Abraham in a rather unique place also. It's been God's method to put his man out on the desert to train him. Elijah had that same type of experience. David was trained out in the outdoors in the caves of the earth, running from Saul. Finally, he cried out. He was hunted like a partridge, said, It's open season on me all the time. And these men were trained of God. Now, the Lord used the same method with Paul, sent him out there, and he was there less than three years. Now, he said that he came to Jerusalem. He saw Peter, bowed with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now, that's all the contact he had with them. He got nothing from them, as we shall see. Now the things, verse 20, which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Now, will you listen very carefully? This liberal that I referred to, this old modernist, he said that, Paul got his gospel by making a homogenized stew of Greek philosophy and the Mosaic system. Now, Paul says here he didn't, and Paul says that he doesn't lie. Now, somebody's lied. Paul said he didn't. Now, I'm too polite to call that modernist a liar, but Paul did. Paul says that you say I got this gospel any other place. He says, I want you to know I do not lie. That means the other man did. So I'll have to just leave it like that because I'd be too polite to say that he was a liar. Paul says it in a very nice way. Now, verse 21. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. 
And I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Now, they were rather reluctant in Jerusalem to accept the apostle Paul. I think without Barnabas, he would probably have waited a long time before the church in Jerusalem would have received him, because he'd persecuted the church. And very candidly, these men knew what it was to be converted. They knew what it was, but to have an experience that was absolutely world-shaking, that would transform a man. But you know, they couldn't believe that this man, Saul of Tarsus, could have been converted. That just seemed to them an improbability. In fact, it was impossibility that he could never have been converted. And so what we have here, well, Paul outlines here for us in this section his first years after conversion. And I don't think, friends, these were the happiest years of his life. I think that he tells us something about the failure during that period in his own personal life, and that's in the seventh of Romans. We've looked at this before, and at that time I suggested there were three periods in the life of the apostle Paul. That was that period when he was a proud Pharisee, marvelous mind, an expert in the Mosaic law, and as many of his biographers have said, the world would have heard of Paul the Apostle if he'd never been an apostle. He'd even never been converted. He was an outstanding man. And I don't think there's any question about that, but he was a proud young Pharisee. He knew it all. He hated Christ. He hated the church. And he attempted to eliminate it, by the way, and he began this persecution. And then on the Damascus road, he's knocked off a donkey down in the dust. This brilliant young Pharisee finds out that he doesn't know Jesus Christ, whom to know is life. And he became acquainted with him. And Paul immediately said, Lord, what do you have me to do? He thought he was dead. I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. And when you persecute my church, you persecute me. And so this man here says that he went through that period. And then, after he had met Christ, there came the years in Arabia. There are these first years as he attempted to minister. And he said, what I wanted to do, I didn't do it. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am. Now, that's not an unsaved man that said that. That's Paul the Apostle who is actually in the first stages here of conversion. He's just been converted just a few years. And then there came that wonderful, glorious period when he walked by the Spirit of God, as he'll tell us in this epistle here. And that was the time that he could live for God. And, old friends, that is the place that many of us need to come today. There are a lot of unhappy Christians today. They're saved, I think. Dwight L. Moody put it in his quaint way. He said, some people have just enough religion to be miserable. And I think that's the picture of a great many today. Now we come to this second period, actually in the experience of Paul here. And that's his experience with the apostles in Jerusalem. I do wish we had more on this particular period. And you'll find out the oneness. Now, because there's a real question that arises at this point, and I'm sure that it's already arisen in your mind, and the question is this. If Paul received the gospel apart from the other apostles who were with the Lord Jesus three years, who saw the resurrected Christ, and who had this experience with him. The question is this, is Paul and the other apostles, are they preaching the same gospel? That's pretty important right now. Because if Paul is not 
something is radically wrong. And so we see Paul's experience as he goes up, actually, to Jerusalem, and now for the first time he meets with them, and we'll see that Jerusalem approved Paul's gospel.